Good morning, all. We're going to read from the book of James, James 1, verses 2 through 18. You can follow along in your Bibles or maybe on the screen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. I have a, uh, I have a picture of a baby giraffe and a mama giraffe. And um, in light of child dedication, I figured, why not, you know? Um, actually, there's more to it than that. It's a very sweet picture, and it's gentle, and it's tender, and clearly this is a newborn giraffe, and the mother's just checking to make sure it's okay, and maybe giving it a little lick and cleaning it up and all of that kind of stuff. Um, even the coldest and the hardest heart in the room right now must feel something by looking at this picture. Um, but the reason I'm showing you this picture is not because of how sweet it is. It's because of the events that took place immediately leading up to what is going on. If you've ever seen one of those nature documentaries with David Attenborough, British accent, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to try to mimic it because I'm notoriously bad at that. Um, but the birth of a baby giraffe, if you've watched one of those documentaries, is notoriously just traumatic. It is earth-shattering. The mama giraffe does not lay down in order to let the, the baby kind of ease onto the dirt. The baby falls eight feet and just pounds into the, into the earth. And <laughs> discombobulated, confused, in pain, just like gone from cozy, warm, fluid things to like cold, hard ground. And then it's like just trying to figure itself out and the mom walks over to it, similar to that, very tenderly and lovingly and gives it a little leg. And then the mom turns around, picks up one of her legs and kicks the baby in the face. And everybody's like, what? what's going on? Again, it's earth shattering. The baby flies into the air, lands back on the cold, hard dirt, and again, is even more discombobulated, in even more pain, struggling even more with confusion, I'm sure. The mother goes, checks, makes sure it's okay, and then picks up the leg again, and boom, kicks the baby again. And this goes on for a little bit, and then the baby is finally like, I need to do something to get out of this situation. And so with all of the strength it can possibly muster, brand newborn baby, legs buckling together with no strength at all, pushes itself up and stands. And you can just imagine, you know, what's going on here. And so the mom's very proud of the baby. The mom goes over to the baby and again, gets close to it, licks it a little bit, and then again, turns around, 
and kicks the baby again, (laughs) knocks the baby down to the ground. This time, though, instead of taking a while to get back up and trying to figure it out, and it's a slow and it's a drawn-out thing, the baby hops up fast and is ready. And as soon as the baby figures out how to stand up quickly and readily, the mother has had enough. And I'm sure the baby's very happy. And the mother goes and again, tenderly and lovingly licks the baby, except this time doesn't turn around and kick it. And they cuddle. And it's so sweet. And it's so amazing. Um, I would say that this is probably one of the most traumatic birth experiences that we have in nature. But what I want to show you, and the reason I share that is understanding the mom's motive and understanding the mom's goal behind this, it, it changes our perspective. It really impacts our perspective about what this baby is going through in that moment. Um, the mom is actually not trying to break her baby. The mom is actually trying to make the baby whole. And so if you've watched one of those documentaries, you know that the reason that God designed giraffes to be like this and to do this is because from the moment that that baby is born, its life is in danger. From the moment that that baby is born, there are hyenas and lions and tigers and all kinds of predators who are ready to pounce on it and eat it. And so the mom knows if I don't teach this baby how to stand up quickly and sprint with the rest of the herd at a moment's notice, it's going to get picked off. And eaten. And so, what looks like animal child abuse is actually an act of love. And so, knowing the mom's motives behind this scene changes our perspective. I don't think there's a better example in nature than this to help us understand what James is communicating in the passage that we just read. Essentially, what Corin just read over us, what we just saw in James chapter 1, is that God is going to send trials into our lives. That God is going to test our faith. That God is going to allow us to suffer. That God is sometimes going to take things away from us. And sometimes it's going to feel like a massive kick to the face. It's painful. It's discombobulating. It's confusing. It's darkness. The psalmist David described it as the valley of the shadow of death. And yet James says to us in verse 2 that somehow... This should be the cause for great joy. Count it all joy when you face various trials. Look at verse 3 with me. Why? Why would he say this? Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you will be whole. You will be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. The idea behind that word various, when he says that you're going to encounter various trials, is that it's trials of all kinds. And, and I think that we do a really uh, big disservice to ourselves when we categorize trials. It's like, you know, we talk about first world problems, and we're like, oh, those don't really matter, and most of them don't. But okay, um, like we think that some problems are like real problems and some problems are fake problems. What James is saying is that every single problem that we face, every single trial is somehow a cause for joy. It's somehow producing this steadfastness in us. And so it could be as massive as losing a loved one. And and, and we've gone through some loss here in the last couple of weeks, which has been really painful. Or it could be as minimal as, as literally just getting cut off or getting cursed out. On the, on the side of the road. It, it could be as painful as a chronic illness, or it could be as petty as an annoying coworker. Trials that, that James is talking about could be as terrifying as a cancer diagnosis, or they could be as trivial as a rainy day. If you find yourself in a situation where you doubt that God is good, and you doubt that he loves you, and that he's actually looking out for you, and you find yourself in a situation where it's hard to obey him, that's a trial. There are all kinds of trials every single day, probably hundreds of them that we will encounter. I'm going to say that again if you're looking for a definition of a trial. 
It's a situation where you doubt that God is good, you doubt that he loves you, that he's looking out for you, and where you're not sure if you can obey his commands. That's a trial. That's a test of faith, big and little. What James is saying to you and me right now, right in this moment, is that our perspective and our response to those moments, and this is going to be difficult, proves our faith. The big question we have to ask ourselves today, then, is how do we perceive trials and how do we respond to trials? This is what I want to explore with you today. I'm going to break it up into three sections. There are some subsections to these sections, but if you were here for our intro last week, I told you that James wrote this book for three purposes. For our happiness, to call us to action, and to point us to Jesus. So let's do that. First, let's talk about our perception of trials. Why are they good? For starters, James wants us to rejoice in our trials. He thinks they're good because in his words, they make us resilient. They make us resilient. Look back at verse 2. He says, Count it all joy when you face all kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, The Greek word for steadfastness doesn't really have a good English equivalent. Some of your Bibles, if you have a different translation than mine, might say perseverance. They might say endurance. Um, They might say patience. The Greek word is actually a combination of two words. It's supomene, and it literally means to remain under, to stay under. And the idea behind this word is basically our modern idea of resilience, Resilience is talked about all the time in our culture, and it's a good thing. It's basically the ability to endure or the ability to persevere through something difficult and then, as a result, come out even stronger, even better on the other side. That's the idea of resilience. And so at its core, it is the ability to face a trial, to go through that trial and be bettered by it rather than be broken by it. That's resilience. That's the idea of hupomene. That's the idea of to remain under, to be steadfast in the midst of trial. So James isn't calling us to some kind of masochistic enjoyment of trials because some people read this like that. Like this is not one of those scenes, you remember in the, in the dark night when the Batman is interrogating the Joker and, and, and Batman just starts pounding him and the Joker's like loving it. And he's laughing hysterically. He's like, hit me some more. And he's begging Batman to just keep on hitting him because he loves the pain. That's not what James is calling us to. James is not calling us to enjoy our trials. James is telling us to rejoice in our trials because they're actually doing something in us. They're making us stronger. They're um, making us better. They're making us more resilient. Yes, they're difficult. Yes, they're painful. And, and the beautiful thing about Christianity is it invites us to, to weep. It invites us to lament. It invites us to mourn in the pain. And it promises that Jesus enters into that pain with us. The shortest verse in the Bible might just be the most profound verse in the whole Bible. It is literally two words. And those two words are Jesus wept. He enters into the pain with us. He weeps with us. They're difficult. And yet, what James is saying is that we should count them all joy. That word count means consider. When we think about trials, we should think of them in a way that causes our hearts to rejoice. Because they are the training ground on which we learn the skill of remaining under. George Bonanno uh, is a clinical psychologist at Columbia University, and and it's really fascinating. This is just another example of the science always catching up to Jesus. He talks about how the central elements of resilience is our perception of the difficult events we face in our lives. It's how we see them. It's how we view them. He writes it like this. Do you conceptualize an event as traumatic or as an opportunity to learn and grow? So I'll just leave that out. Let Let me let that hang for a minute. When you go through a hard time, do you see it, do you perceive it as traumatic or as an opportunity to learn and to grow? Is it a kick to the face by some brutal mama giraffe 
Or is it the means through which you are going to be made whole and complete and prepared for life? Another psychologist put it this way, Maria Konnikova. She said, living through adversity, be it endemic to your environment or an acute negative event, does not guarantee that you'll suffer going forward. What matters is whether that adversity becomes traumatizing or we let it become. We perceive it as traumatizing. If we frame adversity as a challenge, then we become more flexible and able to deal with it, move on, learn from it, and grow. So I think what James is trying to get us to ask ourselves is when we go through hard times, do we see ourselves as victims of some cruel, I guess, imaginary foot just coming out of nowhere and squashing us? Or do we see ourselves as sons and daughters of a God who loves us and that is discipline that he is using to train us up and to make us whole and complete so that we can live life the way it was designed to be lived? How we perceive trials determines determines the amount of resilience that we experience on the other side. This is what James is saying. Guys, if God is good, and if you're his children, then every trial that he sends along your path, every test of faith that you encounter, you can know has a goal behind it. And that goal is love. And that goal is your well-being. That goal is his glory manifested in your life. And so as a result, we can rejoice. I think the most traumatic event that I've ever experienced in my life, I've shared this before, so I'm not going to belabor it, okay? Because you're, some of you have been here for a while and you're already laughing because you've heard it too many times. So just a nutshell, I experienced a public rejection as a sixth grade boy entering puberty in front of like 250, 300 middle schoolers. It was awful. It was traumatizing. The impacts of that lasted for years and years and years and years, okay? If you want to know the full story, listen to like three other sermons. It's in one of them, okay? Um, <laughs> it, it impacted me. I viewed it as, as traumatizing. I was the victim. I blamed literally everyone involved, my friend who set me up, this youth pastor who for some reason, made me ask this girl out in front of the whole youth group as an 11-year-old. Um, all of these situations that were not my fault, that were out of my hands and out of my control, I was the victim to these things, and I was mad. You know what I mean? Well, as I've gotten older, I've been able to look back on this with a different lens, okay? And, and it's really fascinating. One of the things that I know about this event was that it was a humiliation, one of the things that I know I have needed as I've gotten older and older and older again is humility. And I look back on this event now as a shaping event, as a gift, so I wouldn't be just some arrogant jerk. It's really fascinating. Um, as I got older and I kind of outgrew that rejection and, and all of that kind of stuff, you know what I became acutely aware of? And, and it was because of this event, I became acutely aware of other people who were being made fun of. And I became acutely aware of other people who were going through rejection. I would not have had that if I had not gone through that. And so my perspective on that event has changed over the years. Honestly, like I talked with Caleb about it. You know, we, we talked about a year ago. We were like kind of going back over some of these like crucial events in our lives. And I'm still seeing things like how old am I now? I'm 36. I'm an old guy. I'm not that old. I'm, I'm still, you know, okay. <laughs> Compared to the, the median of this room, I am an old guy. Um, but I, I'm seeing new things every day. My perspective is changing. And what I'm realizing is that I can rejoice over that trial because it was making me stronger. It was making me better. It was making me more whole. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the first thing that James wants us to see. Trials make us more resilient. We can rejoice because of that. Second, James wants us to rejoice in our trials because they not only make us more resilient, but resilience 
leads to our deepest happiness. Okay, I'm going to have to prove this to you. This is going to be a little bit more difficult. Look back at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. That is describing a state of shalom. That is describing what the psalmist would, just, would say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have no more want. I am perfectly content. I have everything I need. Now, when we read Psalm 23, we read about green pastures and we read about tranquil waters and we read about a feast in the presence of our enemies and cups that are running over and excess and comfort and ease. And so we think that David is talking about, I lack nothing because I have everything. That's not what he's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying because if you study the life of David, you know that his life was anything but ease. And you know that his life was anything but comfort. You know that his life was trial after trial after trial after trial. That he was being hunted down by King Saul. That he was hiding out in caves for over a decade even after he had been anointed as king. That people hated him. He had enemies from inside his family, inside his kingdom, and outside of the kingdom. That his kids were rebellious. That they were doing all kinds of bad stuff. Even his sin had caused all kinds of chaos. You look at the life of David, it is anything but green pastures and tranquil waters. So why could David say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no more want? Why could he say, I lack nothing? It's because he had gone through all of these trials. And with every trial, he had been made more whole and more complete until he realized, I have everything I need in Jesus. That is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. And that is the pinnacle of happiness in this life. It's not just endurance for endurance's sake. Like, wouldn't that be awful? I'm giving you a trial to teach you endurance. Why? So that you learn endurance. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't sound good. No, that's not what he's saying. I'm giving you a trial so that you learn endurance. Why? Because endurance, when it has its full effect, produces this kind of contentment where you can say, I lack nothing. That's the goal. Endurance has a reward in mind. And so it's actually our ability to persevere under trial that leads us to a transformed life. It's this skill that leads us to a resolute faith. Guys, remaining under. That's the word here, remember. Remaining under is what enables us to reach our highest and our truest potential as human beings. Without adversity and without trials, without the tests of faith, we would be incomplete. We would lack something. But with them, we lack nothing. Again, just think back to the baby giraffe. The giraffe's ability to perform at its highest capacity, to really thrive out there in the desert, in the wild, is a direct result of the pain it encounters at birth. Do you see that? So you could insert the giraffe into James 1 and say that, it was made complete and it was brought in maturity and it lacked nothing that it needed for life because of its trials. And the same thing's true for you and for me. As the old saying goes, no pain, no gain. Remember in your high school gym, a big old, there's probably like 10 posters with that on it. No pain, no gain. It's true. If you want to experience the deepest happiness possible, which is an experience of God himself. And if you want to reach your highest potential and perform at your highest possible level and live life the way it was designed to be lived, which is the way of Jesus, I'm going to show you that at the end, then you have to develop resilience. And resilience comes by way of trial. As I was studying all of this this past week, I could not help but think back to soccer because I think soccer is a perfect analogy for everything in life, but especially for this. And I was thinking about the fact that the level of freedom and the level of happiness and the level of success that any soccer player has on the field 
is, or, or during a game is totally dependent on the amount of endurance that they've built up over time. Like you could have enough endurance for 10 minutes, so you'll have fun for 10 minutes, but the game lasts 90 minutes. And so your happiness and your freedom and your success on the field is, is totally dependent on you not losing your legs and you not losing your lungs for 90 minutes so that you don't get subbed out. It's all connected to endurance. I'll never forget, we, uh, we would all show up to camp first week uh, back to school, and, and we called it Hell Week because all it was was essentially trial after trial after trial after trial after trial. And I'll never forget one of the years we showed up in our strength and conditioning coach for one year. Thankfully, he was fired after this year. Um, he was an ex-Marine, and he was just one of those hard-nosed guys that just did stuff to do it. Like, we did this in the Marines, so this is good for soccer players. I'm like, what? It doesn't make any sense. We show up first day of camp, and he has literally cut down a tree. And, and he's like, all right, guys, you're gonna, you're, it's 5 a.m., and it's the first day of camp. We're rubbing the sleep out of our eyes. And he's like, all right, guys, pick up that tree. You're running the cross-country trail with that tree. And, and I'm not joking. Our, our cross-country trail was three and a half miles. It was the hardest trail in the Northeast. It had two of the steepest hills in the region. And, and, and our cross-country team was good. Our soccer team wasn't good. They were good because of this is what they practiced on every day. And so he's like, run this trail with this tree, and I'm timing you. We, we said words we didn't know we knew. And we made up words to make us feel better about saying the words we didn't know we knew. And we are in misery trying to carry this tree all around the cross-country trail. Finally get it done. Then... He takes us back down to bottom field and he has set up all of these cones and all of these long sticks that are staked into the ground and he's come up with this drill that he called the Chelsea. And he called it the Chelsea because he didn't come up with it. He stole it from Chelsea Football Club, which is another reason why I hate Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> and um, it was a sprinting drill. And all we did was sprint and race and sprint and race and sprint and race and everybody's exhausted and everybody's throwing up and everybody wants to quit and we hate life. And then took us up to the hill that we had just run with the tree, one of those big steep ones. And this is at the end of the session. He's like, all right, guys, we're running sprints up and down this hill. We're going to race and we're going to time each other and all this kind of stuff. Absolutely miserable. Um, so many of us wanted to die. So many of us wanted to quit. A couple days later, though, you know, you build up endurance and you build up strength. And that hill that nobody could run up, you know, we're all dying. And we're literally like army clawing up this hill because we can't run anymore. We have no more legs. A few days later, by the end of camp, he tells us, all right, guys, we're going to run the hill again. And we're going to race. And I want you to choose a partner. And you're going to be teammates. And you're going to race against all the other guys. And it's a competition. And there's rewards. And there's punishments and all that kind of stuff. And so we're pumped. We choose who we think is going to be the fastest person. And we get in a line. We think it's going to be a relay. And he's like, all right, one of you hop on the other one's back. We're like, what? And you're like, all right, let's go. And we literally had to carry each other up and down the hill. But you know what's crazy about it? We could do it because endurance under trial produces more endurance for the next trial. And then endurance in that trial produces more endurance for the next trial. And it, it's compounding. It's compounded interest. And, and all of a sudden, your legs are stronger. And all of a sudden, your lungs are stronger and your back is stronger. And then by the time you get to your first game a month later, guess what you have? Freedom and joy, and happiness, and the ability to just run around and kick a ball. That's the idea here, guys. Steadfastness is the pathway to completion. It is the means of maturation. It's the foundation of deep and lasting happiness. Steadfastness does not grow without trials. You will not become more resilient unless you go through trials. I remember reading uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and it's like 800 and something years after today, and he comes across like basically what he thinks humans are going to evolve into. It's fiction, okay? Um, and, and, and it's the species called the Eloi, 
and they're these small creatures, and they're really beautiful, and they're really happy, and they love pleasure, and they just have a great time, but they don't work, they have no adversity, and therefore they have zero resilience. They're scared, they're naive, they're dumb, they are incomplete. James is saying, guys, that's what we are without trials. If you want to be whole, if you want to arrive at your deepest happiness, where you can say, I am totally content, you've got to go through the trial. They're producing something wonderful in us. Okay, so deep happiness is developed when we don't run away, but when we remain under and rejoice in trials. That's the second thing we need to see. Third, we need to rejoice in our trials because they make us more resilient and resilience leads to our eternal reward. Look back at verse 12. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's that word again, who remains under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, Every time we go through a trial and remain under it, we don't run away, we don't quit, we stand firm, we trust and we obey God through it, we are proving our faith. We're proving that we love him. Did you notice that? God has promised reward to those who love him. We prove that we love him. And when we do that, we are storing up treasure in heaven. Every time someone wrongs you, and you choose to forgive instead of fight back, you are investing in heaven. Every time you're tempted to look at someone or something with lust or with envy, and, and you don't do it, and you pass the test, you are investing in your eternal future. There's a reward for you. Nobody sees it, but God does. And it's in the balance book. And there's a reward on the other side for you. Because you pass the test. Every time you suffer loss, every time you face heartache, and you bless God in the midst of it, like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. He brought me out of my mother's womb. He can take me to my grave. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Every time you can do that, you are storing up for yourself a unique crown. James calls it the crown of life. In other words, and I want you to hear this, trials aren't just about building up endurance in this life. They are about building up rewards in the life to come. They're not just about living life to the fullest here and now. They're about living life to the fullest for all eternity. And we talked about this in detail last summer, almost a year ago. We talked about it in our mini-series on heaven. But just to refresh your memories a little bit, I want you to look at some of these promises with me. Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man, who's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father... Then, I will, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Revelation 22. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay every single person for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Ephesians 6. Whatever good thing each person does, he will receive back from the Lord. Hebrews 11. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's just a concise list of some of the crowns that are mentioned that we are going to receive based on some of the good deeds that we do in this life. 1 Corinthians 9, your discipline and your self-control in the heat of the moment, in the moment of the test, in the moment of the trial, in the moment of the temptation, which, by the way, testing and trial and temptation are the same word in the Greek, receives the incorruptible crown. First Thessalonians 2, every single time you lead someone to Christ, you receive the crown of rejoicing. Second Timothy 4, 
Every time you faithfully and sacrificially live for Christ, you will be rewarded with a crown of righteousness. 1 Peter 5, every time you faithfully shepherd God's people, you will be rewarded with a crown of glory. James 1 that we just read, every single time you remain steadfast in the midst of trial, you will receive the crown of life. This is one of the most important one of the most profound, one of the most incredible promises in the New Testament, and yet it has become almost entirely overlooked and underapplied in our churches today. And I, and I preached a whole sermon on it a year ago. And so if you want to go deeper, and I hope you do, if you weren't here a year ago, I would invite you to do that. But let me just kind of give you a picture of what it is. Revelation 14 says our works follow us into heaven. The evil ones and the selfish ones and the worldly ones get burnt up, but the good ones, the good works that we do, follow us into heaven and they become our everlasting glory. Salvation is by grace. Compensation is by works. And we haven't been told that enough. Endurance is not for the sake of endurance. Endurance is the pathway to reward, and you need to believe that every time you endure, there is a reward waiting for you on the other side. There's a reward in this life, and there is one that's even greater in the one to come. I used this illustration a year ago. I'll use it again, and then I'll move on, but since some of you aren't here, and you're probably having a hard time buying what I'm saying because it, you've never heard this before in church, um, I think one of the best ways to think about what's going to happen when we stand before God is to think about a graduation ceremony and to think about the award ceremony that, that, that we're all going to be a part of. Salvation is by grace, which means if, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and you've said, I can't earn my way to heaven by any works that I have done, I need you to save me, I need you to redeem me, I need you to wash me white as snow, you're going to be at the graduation ceremony. You're going to have your robe and you're going to have your hat and it's going to be awesome and you're going to be pumped. But there's a difference between the person who's just there by the skin of their teeth, the person who procrastinated the entire semester, the person who never did any homework until the very end and, and got all the extra credit and, and begged hands and knees to the teachers to show some mercy. There's a difference between that person's joy at graduation and the person who lived in the library. The person who worked as hard as they possibly could so that they could graduate with honors and get a little gold rope. Who, who graduated uh, sigma cum laude. Is that even how you say it? I wasn't going for it. So, so I'm the first guy, okay? How do you even say it? See, some of you care. Um, your joy at graduation was different than my joy at graduation. My joy at gra graduation was relief, and it was excitement. I'm done. Um, and, and your joy was accomplishment added to I'm done. Guys, the, the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ that is taught over and over and over again in the New Testament is not where the lambs and the goats are separated. It is not the judgment seat of Christ where he opens up the book of life and says, who's in my son and who's not. The Bema is an award ceremony and it's for believers and we're caught up on stage and all of the evil that we've done and the selfish stuff that we've done goes to this fire and it's burnt up and everything we've done for Christ and every trial that we've passed and every test that we have, man, we, we, we endured through it, goes through the fire and it comes out as pure gold and then all of that lasts and God gives us rewards and he gives us crowns and we actually, as an act of worship, lay those crowns back at his feet, but then for all eternity, we go into heaven and our works follow us like a robe. They are our glory for all eternity. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are rewarded by our faithfulness. And, and again, I know that this is opening up a major, major theological can of worms, because it sounds like I'm not all about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 right now. But we always forget Ephesians 2, 10, which, which comes right after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is, you are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. And verse 10, you were created for good works. Every time God gives us a command, every time he tells us to do a work, I hope you've heard me say this before. There's a reward on the other side of that. So what would the reward be for, hey, um, I, I want you to be faithful to me even to the point of death. I want you to be obedient to me even if it means you lose your job. I want you to stand firm on the truth even when everyone around you isn't. What's the reward for that? More often than not, there is not a reward this side of heaven. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are not getting many earthly rewards right now. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and China are not getting many earthly rewards right now. So are they idiots for obeying? Are they, are they just fools? No. There is a reward on the other side. The crowns are awaiting. They are investing in eternity. And that's what James wants us to see. We can, we can rejoice in trials because even if no one else sees them, no matter how little they are, no matter how big they are, no matter how easy they are, no matter how difficult they are, we are investing in our eternal destiny. And you need to believe that. I need to believe that. There's an award ceremony that is coming. So now the big question is, that's how we're supposed to see our trials. How in the world are we supposed to respond with joy in real time? Because like this is all easy to say. It's, it's not actually easy to say. It's easy to say in theory, right? It's easy to say, okay, I believe that, and I believe that, and I believe that. How in the world are we supposed to respond with joy in real time? Verse 5 tells us, look back at the text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, what James is saying is, we don't have to do it alone. The tests and the trials of life were never meant to be endured without the presence of God and the comfort of God and the wisdom of God. He's allowing us to go through these trials and he wants to give us his wisdom so that we can see what he's doing as we go through them. Like the, the, the answer to the question why is usually the, the biggest one. How are you working right now, God? Why are you doing this? What are you trying to accomplish in my life? More often than not, in real time, we can't see it. All we feel is a kick to the face. And so he says, listen, pray. Stop and pray. Cry out. Ask God for wisdom. Ask him to show you. And if you pray in faith, he's going to give that wisdom generously. He's going to show you what he's doing. Man, our, our first response usually, at least my first response when I go through trials is not to count them all joy. Like my first response is usually to complain. My first response is usually to play the victim. My first response is usually to look for someone to blame. And more often than not, it's God. Because I believe that he's sovereign. Usually my first response is not, wow, God, Thank you so much for this wonderful trial that you've given me. I can already tell that this is going to make me better. I can already tell this is going to make me stronger. I, I can already feel how much more perfect I'm becoming as a result of this trial. When, when can we do this again, God? No. My first response is usually like, God, where are you? God, why, why, why can't I hear you? Why can't I feel you? Why do you, why do you seem so distant? I prayed, I prayed for this and you gave me this. I thought, I thought Jesus said that if you ask for a loaf of bread from your father, he's not going to give you a scorpion. So why in the world am I holding the scorpion? That's usually my first question. What is this? More often than not, trials don't make sense. More often than not, it's really hard to see how anything good could possibly come from them. And so we doubt. 
and we despair and our faith is shaken. James says in those moments, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now let's unpack that for a minute. If we pray for wisdom in faith with no doubting, God will honor that prayer and give generously without reproach. That means even though we can't see how he's working in the trial, even though we can't see why he's giving us the trial, we can trust that he's working and that he's working for our good. That's what faith is. We have faith. We trust in his character. We trust in his word. We believe his promises that he's not only sovereign, but he's good. So we ask him for help. We ask him for wisdom. We ask him for comfort. And he responds with grace. Now, there's a really difficult line here that says, with no doubting. Have any of you ever prayed a single prayer in your life without doubting? I can think of maybe a handful in my life. So is that encouragement? <laughs> What's James saying here? This is one of those difficult passages that, that I talked about in, in Bible Study 101. When you have a difficult passage, it's like, what is he saying here? What does it mean to pray in faith, to pray without doubting? You, you go to the rest of the Bible, and you go to the clear passages, and, you, and you, you sidle them up next to this passage, and you let it make sense of this. And, and so what we do is we go to the Gospels, and we see examples of people praying in faith and Jesus answering their request with generosity. I think about uh, Caroline and our, Caroline's going through Mark right now. And, and she was telling me about she's reading the storm, the, the, the scene of the storm where the disciples are, are in the boat and there's the storm. And Jesus is so exhausted that he's literally sleeping through a typhoon. And, and it's not, he's not fake sleeping. Like, this is one of the things Caroline was showing me. You know, I always think of Jesus as like, oh, he's just pretending. Like, one eye open, he's waiting for the disciples to come and be like, hey, why don't you wake up? Because he's, no, he's, he's, he's out. He's exhausted. He's a man. And, and they're like, they, they go to him in panic, and they're frantic. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care about us? And my first thought is, that doesn't sound like faith. That sounds like a little bit of confusion. That sounds like a little bit of doubt. So Jesus, he wipes the sleep out of his eyes. He's like, I do, I do. Calm down. <laughs> everything calms down and everything's good. Um, I, I think about uh, this story in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus interacts with this man. This man has a sick son. He's not just sick. He's demon-possessed, and this demon is causing the son to be dumb. And, um, dumb is in the sense that he can't speak and causes him to have seizures and foam at the mouth and, mouth and grind his teeth, and the, and the demon causes him to like throw himself in the fire and hurt himself. And, and, and this man is doing everything that he can to get close to Jesus, and he finally gets close to him, and he cries out in the midst of this crowd. He's like, Jesus! If you can heal my son, please do it. Jesus is like, how long has this been happening? And, and the guy's like, since his childhood, since he was a little boy. And Jesus says to him in, in Mark 9, look at it with me, I have this slide. He responds to him by saying, if you can. The guy's literally just said, if you can, do it. Jesus is like, if you can, does that sound like faith? Does that sound like faith with a little smidge of doubt? All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, and this is what I think is really what James is getting after. I believe, 
but help my unbelief. I have faith. I believe that you're strong. I believe that you're good. I believe that you can heal. But at the same time, my belief is like on the floor. And so I need some help. And so Jesus saw that the crowd had come running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit. And he said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Guys, sometimes the prayer of faith is the prayer of faith that's the size of a mustard seed. It's like you can hardly see the faith. And you're clinging on to the promises of the word of God. And you're saying, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Pray with faith for wisdom. And he gives it generously without reproach. I think we misread this passage and we think, if I don't have faith up to here, God's not going to answer my prayer. And since we never have faith up to here, we just don't pray. Oh, what a tragedy. That's the first step in real time. Pray, ask for wisdom. The second step, and I want you to hear this, is to actually open up his word and receive his wisdom. Guys, the worst thing that you, can, you and I can do in our moments of trial is to ask God to speak to us and then never pick up this book so we can actually hear him. The worst thing that you and I can do is ask him for his comfort and then never dive deep into the promises that he's given us specifically for our comfort. If you want joy and if you want peace and if you want hope in the midst of your trials and if you're going to everyone and everything except for the word of God that he gave to you for this purpose, you're not going to find any of those things. I think our, our natural reaction when we're going through trials is to go to people. And people are good because people pray for us, especially the people of God. They bear burdens with us. Maybe we go to a self-help book. Maybe we go to a book on suffering that's got some Bible verses in it, which is good. Those things are helpful. Maybe we go to a podcast. Maybe we go to a therapist. None of those things are bad. But if any of those things have replaced this, you're not going to find the wisdom you're looking for. Open up his word and seek his face. Explore his testimonies. Meditate on his promises. And you will be lavished with his grace. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete. It's the same word in James. Whole, perfect, lacking in nothing, equipped for every good work. Guys, if you want to be able to count it all joy in the midst of your trials, ask him for his wisdom, ask him for his peace, ask him for his comfort and joy, and then open up his word and let him speak those things over you. That's how we respond in the midst of trials. That's the call to action. So this is how we perceive trials. This is how we're called to respond to testing According to the book of James, that leads us to the final question. How in the world does all of this point us to Jesus? And I'm going to wrap it up, and this is the good news. Let me just say, i got to give a caveat at the, the beginning of this. <laughs> I told our elders I was kind of dreading this. Um, everything I'm about to show you is true. Everything I'm about to show you is biblical. Everything I'm about to show you is intensely beautiful and will change your life if you grasp it. And yet when I show you, you're not going to believe me because more than likely you have never heard this before. Not only that, but more than likely you have actually heard the exact op of opposite of this your whole Christian life. So I know I'm about to open 
a massive can of theological worms. Um, I know that I'm not going to have time to fully address these worms right now. So let me just say that as I'm speaking this incredible, true, and beautiful, amazing um, gospel over you, if you want to go deeper, and you should, I need to recommend this book to you. It's called The Man Christ Jesus, Theological Reflections on the Humanity of Christ. It is in our book nook. This is the last copy. Good luck. (laughs) I will restock it. Don't worry. I didn't realize it was our last copy. (laughs) I went in there to count them so I could tell you, we got 10 10 of these in the book nook. We don't. Um, I'll give this away to the first person who grabs it right after the service. But it's encouraging because it means like 15 or 20 of you have read it, so you'll you'll believe me. Um, That book right there is all-time top 10 for me. All-time. It is a must-read for every Christian if you want to understand the humanity of Jesus Christ. Um, So again, good luck. Everything I'm about to say is defended in that book and the Bible. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. Okay, with that caveat, turn with me in your Bibles. Go here with me. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Hebrews chapter 5. Let me show you how James 1 is ultimately all about Jesus. If you don't have a Bible, best investment of your life, go buy one, or we've got free ones in the lobby. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You could also translate that. He was heard because of his fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Oh man, I'm going to get emotional this whole way. Mm. I thought I got it all out this morning. Mm. It's too good, guys. It's too good. get through it. And being made perfect, you see that language, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay. Okay, a nutshell of some theology that is unpacked in that book. It's unpacked in the Bible. Um, When Jesus took on flesh, he cloaked his glory. Um, Philippians uh, 2 tells us that he he didn't count his, his glory as something to be grasped, but he set it aside and he took on flesh. Flesh became a cloak. Flesh became a garment. And it and it hid these attributes of omnipotence, which is the all powerful. It hid, it cloaked his attribute of omniscience, which means he knows everything at all times. It it covered up his omnipresence, which means that he is in all places at all times. When he took on flesh, it became a cloak, and he limited himself to time and space, and he became a man, a human man. Yes, he was fully God, but he lived as a human man, which means he did not rely on his deity to carry out what the Father had given him. He relied on the same exact resources that you have and that I have. The power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. Okay. He had to offer up prayers and requests because he needed help. He cried out with tears Because he felt his vulnerability and he felt his weakness. Jesus didn't know everything that was going to happen all the time. 
couldn't be in multiple places at once. And he suffered every test and every trial known to man. Everything that you have ever faced as a test of your faith, he faced. Now it might have looked different, but ultimately the test was the same. And, and James says that God cannot be tempted. But what this is, again, oh, it's so deep and complex. Read the book. Jesus was tempted as a human man. And so his obedience and his victory in temptation was as a human man. This is what's so incredible. Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to grow in faith and learn obedience and be made perfect or whole or complete through the trials that he suffered. I warned you, didn't I? What in the world does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus grew in faith and learned obedience and was made perfect through trials? Bruce Ware puts it like this, and this is going to be a longer quote, but I'm just going to, and it's going to get to a point. Hebrews is indicating that Jesus learned to obey the Father through the whole of his life with an obedience that was rendered in increasingly difficult situations as he grew and developed. He grew in faith. He learned obedience. As the Son learned to obey the Father in earlier times of lighter divine demands upon him and consequent lighter suffering, lighter that is in comparison both to, to the divine demands and the sufferings he would encounter in the end as he obeyed the Father in going to the cross. These earlier experiences of faith and the Father's provision, protection, and direction prepared him for the greater acts of obedience he would need to render as he got nearer to the time of the cross. In other words, those earlier obediences, we might call them, under circumstances with lighter suffering and affliction, were prescribed by the Father as the training program necessary to prepare Jesus for the later and much harder obediences that were to come. He learned to obey increasingly difficult divine demands with their accompanying increasingly difficult opposition and affliction through the whole of his life, which prepared him for the greatest of all divine demands upon him and the greatest attending suffering he could ever experience. In this sense, then, the difficulties and afflictions Jesus experienced through the whole of his life were planned by his Father in order to prepare Jesus for the greater and indeed greatest acts of faith he would need to render to complete the Father's mission for his Son. Now listen to this. Since Hebrews 5.7 says that he prayed with loud cries and tears, does it not indicate that Jesus experienced agonizing hardship and difficulty in his endeavor to obey the Father? Does this not indicate that Jesus' trust in the Father and his dependence on what the Father alone would provide him was hard fought and hard won? Throughout his life, Jesus fought to believe. He fought to obey. He fought in prayer as he hoped in what the Father would provide. Guys, since Jesus lived his life as a human man, his faith was not automatic. His obedience was not easy. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times and asked the Father to remove the cup, remove the trial, take away the test, and give him any other way but the cross. He was not play-acting when he was sweating blood. He was not pretending to put on a show for all of his disciples that it was hard for him to obey his Father, that the trial didn't scare him to death. That the thought of bearing hell for you and me was nothing more than death itself. 
It was hard fought and it was hard won. He was struggling and he was fighting to believe in the goodness and the rightness and the faithfulness of his father's will. Matthew 26 tells us that he was sorrowful to the point of death. Have you ever felt that kind of agony? Have you ever felt that kind of heartache, that kind of sorrow, that kind of despair? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are not alone. You're the first fruits of his creation, but he went before you. He's already been there, and he is not asking you to do anything for him that he has not already done for you. He had to be made perfect in order to obey and become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Not perfect in relation to sin, because he was always that, but perfect in relation to his faith. I'm telling you, you got to read the book. Here's where again, and I'm about to close. The issue for Jesus was not one of moving towards sinless perfection. He was always sinlessly perfect. The issue, rather, was one of character formation and faith maturity so that he would be able, in the end, to obey the Father's most difficult demand upon him and go to the cross. Every lighter demand that he had obeyed throughout his life was nothing less than God perfecting his faith and preparing him for the cross. He needed resilience. (laughs) And get this, later on in Hebrews 12, the author tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured, that he remained under, that he persevered through the wrath, that he continued to the point of death. He counted it all as joy. Isn't that beautiful? When James says, count it all joy when you face various trials because it's going to produce resilience in you and that resilience is going to lead to wholeness and it's going to perfect your faith and it's going to mature your faith. He's not just calling us to put our faith in Christ. He's calling us to literally follow in his footsteps. Trials are good because they make us resilient. When he says that they're good because they lead us to our deepest happiness, when he says that they're good because they earn us our eternal rewards. You know what he's actually saying? Trials are good and we can count them as all joy because they are essentially leading us in the way of Jesus. What if Jesus viewed the trials as trauma and not a training ground? Hebrews would argue that he wouldn't have grown in resilience, that he wouldn't have grown in endurance, that he wouldn't have been able to learn that God can be trusted, that God is good, that he is infinitely wise, that he has a plan even when he can't see it and even when the night is dark. He isn't asking us to do anything for him that he hasn't already done for us. So again, Hebrews 12 says we fix our eyes on him because he is the author and he's the perfecter of our faith. We set our hope in him. We stake our lives on him, fully confident that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also along with him freely give us all things. Amen? That was half-hearted. I think I've, I think I've scared you. Would you stand?